Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When people gossip, they oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ in two ways. First, they show disregard for the biblical warning that no one is allowed to judge anyone before the time. Second, they show disregard for the actions demanded by the Lord's teaching. To be clear, the one who gossips wastes precious time talking when they should be taking action. In Mark, not only do they waste time spinning empty words, but they do so by criticizing the one person besides Jesus who does take action. But I tell you, Jesus exclaims in Matthew, that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 196 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. So we've been working through chapter 13, Richard, in which it was made very clear that Jesus was sitting in opposition to the temple, that Jesus values the things that Caesar does not value, that the temple itself doesn't value, that Jesus is not only opposing the temple or critiquing the temple and its leadership, but speaking prophetically about its destruction. And by speaking prophetically, we don't mean predicting the future. We mean making the judgment of the prophets present in a material way that relates to the power of the Roman army. All this is going on. It's no wonder now at the beginning of chapter 14 that they're plotting to kill him. What the Pharisees are doing is they're ensuring the word does not go out. The scribes and the Pharisees are trying to stop Jesus, who is carrying the teaching forward. And the disciples, by not fulfilling their duty as assigned by Jesus, are complicit in the same outcome, which is the same sin. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. And here again, it's the same old problem. They're interested in bread and circuses to pacify the mob. They're so concerned about what the people might say, but it doesn't concern them that they're plotting murder. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. When you hear that Jesus is reclining at table at someone's house in the New Testament, it's a Eucharistic metaphor. 
And by Eucharistic, I mean he's sitting at table having fellowship with a leper, which strengthens this point, and teaching. So it's in this setting where he's sharing the word at someone's table that now enters this woman with this costly perfume. Jesus changed so much. In the beginning, we kept talking about how Jesus was avoiding houses and avoiding going to people's places. And here we have Jesus not only in somebody's house, but tarrying there, spending time there. Now, he's in Bethany, not Jerusalem, the house of the poor, and not in the house of the rich. He's in the house of Simon the leper. The one house that he is happy to be in, happy to spend time in, is a house of no repute, where the person is an outcast, and it's in the city next to the powerful city. It's in the house of the poor. So the only place that Jesus will spend time is there. And this is fantastic after the previous verse, where we saw the Pharisees care only about the impression that they give to the people, whereas Jesus firmly rejects the house of the rich people and the famous people and the people of notoriety and instead only spends time in the house where someone is poor and where someone has leprosy, is outcast by the people. It's not just poverty and it's not just that the person is outcast because of leprosy, but there is real risk to Jesus by being there. I always call to mind Leviticus where the priest is called to examine the leper seven times which becomes the basis for Jesus' teaching about seven times 70. It's not that he's saying Leviticus was wrong, because already by checking a leper seven times, you're taking a risk. But he's saying the risk has to be boundless if you love the outcast. So it's the house of poverty, where someone is socially outcast, but they're socially outcast because there's a real physical danger to being around them. And Jesus, it doesn't say that he's visiting or sitting at table. It says specifically, katakime, which means to lie down, to recline. He's literally lounging around with people that are bad for his reputation and bad for his health. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? These are the social justice warriors who come and they see Jesus lying, spending time in the house of this leper, and a woman who pays her respects to him. Imagine someone showing respect to Jesus when he is going against all the conventions of what Jesus should be doing and showering him literally with perfume. Of course, this makes the people indignant. But what we have to notice is that they're indignant in the same way that the Pharisees are worried about what the crowds will think. It's just a different ism that they're following. If they understood the value of Jesus with respect to what he's doing, why would they be asking about whether or not the perfume was wasted? Their priority is incorrect. Their reference is incorrect. You said earlier before we recorded the podcast that there's a connection between the woman who gave everything that she had in the temple and this woman here who's pouring the oil. But it's coming at it from a different angle. It's not saying it's not enough. It's now saying, okay, this has some value. But since she places value on Jesus and not on Caesar, it's being wasted. Don't forget that Messiah means the anointed one. The prophet anoints the head of the king so that he becomes king. Here we have a woman with no name anointing the head of a guy who spends his time with the poor. 
the people around don't know scripture. They don't know that Jesus is now anointed as Messiah. Instead, they say, oh, why did we waste this oil? They completely miss the image themselves, and they're inside the story. They see it happening. But we as readers need to understand that this is about showing Jesus to be the Messiah, the one who's chosen by God. And in verse 5, we have now the parish council meeting. For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. This reminds me of 1 Corinthians because you get full of yourself with the false teaching, the materialistic teaching. And then you talk as though you're on the side of the gospel, that you care about the poor, you're on the side of the prophets. And then at the end, the proof that you actually are rejecting the prophets and rejecting the teaching of Jesus Christ is that you're taking the lowest person on the totem pole and you're scolding her. You're causing the weakest in the community to stumble. It's a classic Pauline mechanism here. Their hypocrisy is exposed by how they treat the weakest among them. The reality is that, yes, you should give money to the poor, but not by saving on the back of the poor, which is how institution works. The way that an institution helps charity is not by sacrificing, but by exploiting in order to benefit. You exploit people, you extract wealth from them to take credit for the wealth that you put somewhere else so that the mob would love you. So instead of a giant company giving a million dollars to a school, they have customers collect box tops from the things that they buy to submit so they can get $1,000 for their school. So that the people who only have enough to buy a box of cereal are the ones who are supposed to be funding the school as opposed to the giant corporation, which could be. In business, this is called a win-win. But in scripture, if it's a win-win, it's not love. This is why neoliberalism is as corrupt as neoconservatism. Because the belief that you can facilitate love and brotherhood and make a profit is an impossibility. It's not anti-capitalist or pro-capitalist. Please just take off your ideology caps for this podcast and just open your ears and be logical. Love is not a negotiation between two parties. There are no prenuptial agreements in the kingdom. Love is a one-directional activity. It is a gift. You give love. You don't expect anything in return. How can you? That's why in scripture, God is the only victim. He keeps forgiving, he keeps loving, and humanity keeps spitting in his face. But he provides. Now, he's not your lackey. It's not an open-ended deal because there will be a day of accounting. It's not this silly, unconditional love of psychology which goes nowhere, except to produce people who are confused and lost and abusive because they're narcissistic. My point is, though, that there's no win-win in love. If you want to give a million dollars, there should be a million dollars less in your bank account. Don't figure out how to do it by getting people to buy your product and save your box top. It's not gonna work. Look, the bystanders have got no skin in the game. They wanna figure out how to spend this lady's money. That's all it is. How should she have spent her money? When in fact, what she did is she sacrificed. This is how it ties in with the widow's might. Because she sacrificed. These guys lost nothing in having this, except time, by having this stupid debate. 
But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. All this vain talk about the ethics of what she's done, about the feasibility or the economic wisdom of what she's done, about whether or not it was wasteful, all of it is vain talk because the only thing that matters is the commandment to love the neighbor. So what do we have? We have the weakest in the community being piled on by the self-righteous for doing what they should have done, which is love her neighbor. And sacrificing and giving to the neighbor. And within Mark, we know that Jesus is being anointed king, as you said, in order to be crucified, which is why this is for the day of his burial, which means that he too is weak. In fact, he's weaker than the leper and he's weaker than this woman. So she demonstrated her value by recognizing who was the most vulnerable of all, which was Jesus Christ. Everybody has their opinion. Look, you can have someone who is at the bottom of society, who suffers, and who puts work out because of the suffering that they did. And then you have the rich and the powerful, and they applaud, and they say, good for her. She did a great job. Or they say... Uh, you know, she might have been able to do a better job. Uh, I'll have to look again to see if she did a good job. No, she is the poor. She is the one who suffered. And because of her suffering, she decided to do work for others and to sacrifice even more for others. And everyone else has their opinion. And the opinions are cheap. And we have the Pharisees with their opinions. We have the crowds who are spending time with Simon the leper who have their opinions. But the one person who we don't hear from is this woman because she does not speak. She only acts in an action of sacrifice. This is why gossip is so destructive. Because when you gossip, you are sitting on your chair and you are evaluating. You are giving an opinion. But we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we know from the Lord's encounter with the man who had wealth, we know from numerous examples in scripture, you may not say that someone is good or that someone is bad until the appointed time. You are not allowed to judge because we all know if you open your mouth, you'll be in trouble because look at how silly they look next to this woman. Now, it's interesting when we understand that no one is allowed to use the word good, that Jesus, when he appraises the situation, calls the deed good. He doesn't call her good. Because the deed is the fulfillment of the commandment. Whether or not she's good will be decided by his father on that day. And Jesus will hear his father's judgment and repeat it. For you always have the poor with you. And whatever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. And the functional word here is you. You can do whatever you'd like. You can do them good whenever you want. There are always poor people. So the judgment on you is when do you think it's okay to stop doing good works for the poor? Because right now I see one person doing good works and this is this woman. But I hear a lot of people with a lot of opinions who are doing no good for anybody. It's like Dostoevsky's famous quote from the Brothers Karamazov. I love humanity, but I can't stand my next door neighbor. That's exactly what's happening in this passage. They love the idea of making good use of the oil. In the meantime, 
while they're philosophizing, there's somebody right in front of them who's in need. That's the point. The proof that you'll never do good for the poor is that you're not doing good for me. You are a fraud. How can they understand Jesus? How can they claim to understand Jesus without understanding this anointing done by this random woman? They don't understand because they think it's about helping the poor. It's not about helping the poor. It's about the word continuing to go out. And she's anointing him as a king, as the one who bears the word, as you said. It's not about helping the poor. It's about the word going out because it's the deed that takes care of Jesus, not the actor. So in order for the deed to do good, the word has to go out. And her action, as we'll see, becomes a word. Now... Again, this needs to be stressed. On top of everything we've said about Jesus being the weakest, he's also the one that carries the Torah, that produces the deed, which is the mission. So not only are they demonstrating that they don't care about the poor in the first place, but again, they're demonstrating that they don't understand the importance of what Jesus is doing, and they don't give priority to the teacher. Jesus is carrying the teaching, which means that he is the priority, period. And how could you understand that now in today's culture when people don't stand up and the teacher walks in the room, where people give evaluation forms about their teacher at the end of the semester, where people are upset when the teacher doesn't ask their opinion, where people think it's boring if the teacher is presenting content when they could just be doing whatever, this culture of laziness that has engulfed education, where does it come from? It comes from a lack of respect, not for the teacher as a person, but a lack of respect for knowledge, a lack of respect for wisdom. Do you really believe that a classroom full of students are equal to their teacher? Do you really believe that? No, they're equal before God as human beings. Don't mix apples and oranges. The English language in this regard is limited. There are different types of equality. They're not equal in knowledge, which means with respect to what is valued in the classroom, they are not equal, which is why I personally will never accept the premise of Western pedagogy that everyone likes to talk about, about how wonderful it is that teachers can learn from their students. It's not that a teacher doesn't learn when they teach. It's that for the sake of the students, you can't have that premise because then they'll never learn anything. The only thing that is allowed is to say that the real teacher is the content. And in this sense, the teacher and the student learn together. But since the teacher knows more about the content than the student, why are we obsessed with making the student feel that they're valuable? I don't get it. You are actually hurting society. Because the student is going to die, but the knowledge will remain. And if nobody knows it, society won't remain. This is why the word is the priority, Richard. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Jesus has been trying to teach for a while now that someone after him is going to have to continue to spread this word. He's been doing this since chapter one. When he talked to them about him dying, either they said, no, 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 you're not going to die, or they changed the subject. Jesus is saying, finally, someone recognizes that I'm going to die. So here's someone hopefully, who is going to be ready to pick up the mantle 
and continue to teach the word because the word needs to continue even after I'm gone from this earth. The word must abide. And so that's what he's here for. At this point, she did what she could to recognize that he's going to die. Finally, someone recognizes it. This is the first person to have understood it. And she's nameless. As far as we know, she came off the street. She didn't spend all these years with Jesus, but she got it. That's why she got it, Richard, because the disciples are still angling for power. The Pharisees and the scribes have power. The Herodians have power. The Roman officials have power. So they don't get it because they're still in the frame of mind of struggling not to lose what they have. But she's been stripped away of everything because she has such a lowly status. And that's why it's obvious to her because she is in the same boat as Jesus. I just love the way this image combines the image of the anointing of the king with the anointing for the burial. This is not a contradiction. The text is not contradicting what I'm saying. It's combining these Absolutely. images. And that's what's beautiful is that as he's anointed king, this symbolizes his being the chosen one of God. And then it also represents the anointing of the body for his burial. Obviously, it's not a literal burial because he's not dead yet. What these images are doing are showing that his kingship and his suffering and death are of the same sort and that they are both necessary for the word to continue. Paul says it. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor on the cross. That's why in the wedding ceremony, you put the wreath of victory on the head of the couple. And everyone says, oh, they're the king and queen. No, this is blasphemy. They're not the king and queen of their house. This is a nice Anglo-Saxon fable. Everyone's the king of his own house. No, they are putting on the crowns of martyrdom. Because the only way that you can love is if it's a lose-win situation where you're the loser, period. And this crowning doesn't happen in the throne room of Napoleon. This happens in the house of Simon the leper in the house of the poor. Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And if you don't know what the function of a eulogy is... Study Mark 14, verse 9. The function of a eulogy is not to say how great this woman was. Because no one is great. Come on, do you really believe that someone is great? Don't you ever wonder when you go to a funeral why the person you heard about is so much nicer than the person you knew? It's because the person you heard about is a fabrication. Nobody is great. Only God is great. Through this statement, Jesus makes of her action a word. The one person that Jesus talks about is this woman because she took an action. He doesn't even mention Simon the leper. Oh, poor Simon, he's got leprosy. And he's... No, he doesn't talk like this. One person he lauds who took an action that recognized his kingship and his death, finally, this becomes the word then that will not die. This is the word that Jesus came to preach and she took the correct action. So enough of the opinions, enough of casting your ballot, enough of this. You have to take action. As Nassim Taleb says, you have to have skin in the game. Otherwise, your solution is garbage. The eulogy should take examples from the person's life the way Jesus takes this example of what the woman did and use those examples 
to illustrate the content of the gospel so that when the gospel is preached, you take something from this person's life and you make it stand with Christ forever. Because the gospel stands forever. And suddenly this action, which would disappear into anonymity otherwise, of giving your last coin at the temple, which is real skin in the game, or pouring oil on Jesus' head, or when you see something that no one would notice on your block, something invisible that illustrates the gospel, when you would then use that as the example, you are doing what Jesus is talking about in verse 9. And that's the function of a eulogy. That is how we remember people. It's not about them. It's about the actions they take that can give life long after they're gone. I cannot stress enough the power of verse 9 because every time I go to a funeral and I hear about how nice the person was or some cheap platitude about how they wanted us to be happy if some people are wearing birthday caps and balloons and playing uh, you know, their favorite songs, it's disgusting. Great, they like this artist, they like this song. Then after the wedding, go listen to the song, have a cup of coffee and cry with your sister or your aunt. But you have an hour or less to give the last word until the Lord comes about this person's life, which is precious in the eyes of the Lord. You want to talk about their favorite band? Or do you want to talk about the teaching of Jesus Christ and how their life can be preached in such a way that the teaching abides even after they're gone. Death is a big deal in scripture because it's the opportunity of opportunities. It's the ultimate statement. It's the summation of a person's life. The moment a person dies, that's the last word they give. If you want to take this seriously, think of today as your last day. What statement do your actions make? Not your intentions, not your thoughts, not your feelings, but what word do your actions speak? Take care, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.